welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you so much for your, your word. We are truly thankful for this book of Romans. We're thankful that, that Paul wrote it, that you inspired him to write this book. And uh, we're just thankful for the truth we find in here. Uh, the things there are the exact things we need to hear. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear that tonight you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you make our hearts good soil for the gospel, that, that the seed of the gospel would go deep into us and transform our lives. And Lord, that's something only you can do. I mean, to come here and to, to dig into your word and, and to, to try to know you through your word is something that, that only you do. And so we pray that you would do it, that your spirit would come and so awaken us, that you would free us from our idols, that you would give us hearts that beat for you, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that you would send us out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Romans 5. We're just going to do five verses, so if you guys want to turn there. Romans 5, I'm just going to read the first five verses. Amazing passage. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. It's an amazing passage here, and there's a, there's a bit of a shift here. You see that it starts with therefore. So the first four chapters of Romans, he's really arguing that the only way that you can be right with God is by trusting in Jesus and receiving his gift righteousness, that it can't be by works of the law. It can't be by all these other things. And so he's moved on from that. What he's showing us now is not how we get right with God, but the benefits that we get from being right with God. And uh, you guys will be happy to know we're all done talking about circumcision for a while. You know, that was all part of him proving the gospel. And now we're moving into what does the gospel give us? What are the benefits? We're going to hear a lot less about circumcision. We're going to hear a lot more about the Holy Spirit. So there's a, a big change of gears here in chapters 5 through 8. But he shows us here that the ultimate benefit of the gospel, in verse 1, the ultimate benefit of the gospel what is it? Let's take a look. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate gift of the gospel, guys, is God himself. The ultimate thing we get from being saved, the ultimate thing we get from justification by faith is to have God himself. And the term for it is reconciliation. You can see that in verse 10. And this is something that's really important, and I don't think a lot of us realize this when we first get saved that the ultimate thing that the gospel is about is having God as our treasure. And we looked at some of the other benefits of the gospel the last few weeks. We looked at things like uh, propitiation. Propitiation is where God removes the obstacle of his wrath that was in between us and him. We looked at justification where God removes the obstacle of our guilt. We looked at redemption where we saw that God removes the obstacle of our slavery to sin. But all those things, propitiation, justification, redemption, they're all just to remove the obstacle so God can give us the ultimate gift, which is himself. And I think it's really easy for us to miss that, guys. It's really easy for us to think the gospel is just about us being freed from hell or from our guilt or uh, freeing us from sin, which it's all those things. But if the gospel doesn't give us God, 
then what is it? That's the ultimate gift of the gospel is that God would be our treasure. And I remember where I was when I first kind of realized this. I was uh, reading a book by John Piper, and he asked a question in that book that was like just rocked me. It just moved me, and I, I was never been the same after the question. And I remember exactly where I was reading that book. I was, I was by a pool. I was in Las Vegas. Don't judge me. It was a vet conference. And I'm reading this book, and here's the question. Listen to this question. See how it lands on you. If you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And I remember that question just landing on me like, oh, you know, how much I had thought that the gospel was about what I get from God instead of getting God. And I wonder how much of us even tonight have forgotten that the gospel is about getting God. It shocked me. I realized that I had no idea what it meant to really love and desire God himself. You know, it was really more about what I could get from God. You get forgiveness, you know, uh, get heaven, get freedom from sin, things like that. But the gospel is about getting God. And the good news tonight, guys, is if you're in Christ, you get God as your treasure. Take a look again at verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's so great. I mean, to have peace with God, that, that word peace, uh, the Hebrew concept of that, this is in Greek, but the Hebrew concept of that, shalom, meant a lot more than the absence of conflict. So it isn't that you're just not in conflict with God. Shalom means the, a total well-being. It means that everything is good. Everything's in its right place. There's fullness. And that's what you have, guys, with God. You have a relationship that's good. Everything between you and God is good. It's, there's well-being, there's fullness. You have every, every access to him. If you look at verse 2, he says that we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Isn't that cool to think about? You stand in grace. You live in an environment of grace now. Grace is God's undeserved favor. And now everything that you receive from God is by grace. Even hardships and all kinds of things are all from God's grace. You stand in grace. And so tonight what we're going to look at is how that joy of being at peace with God and being reconciled to God gives us comfort now, gives us joy now, gives us hope now. We're going to look at three things. The first thing we're going to look at is that God gives us joyful anticipation. Take a look at verse 2 again. At the very end, he says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God gives us joy as we anticipate our future. And that's how anticipation works, right? So anticipation of something positive allows the joy of the future to come into the present, doesn't it? It allows the joy of the future to come into the present. A good example would be vacations. You guys probably have anticipatory joy, joyful anticipation when you're going to go on vacation, right? That the joy of your vacation, the joy of your trip, it doesn't just uh, stay in the area where the trip is, you know, like the, when you're at the trip. It actually leaks back into the week before, or weeks before, or maybe months before, for some of us. You know, just having a trip plan, having something planned, some sort of vacation, gives us hope and it gives us joy. So that, that joy of the future leaks back to the present. And the same thing happens about our joy in the glory of God, it says in verse 2. That we have hope in the glory of God. We have joy in the hope of the glory of God. 
Um, you guys might wonder, what is the glory of God? That's something, that's a term we use a lot. What is the glory of God? The glory of God, guys, is the way that God manifests himself to us so that we can know him and enjoy him. Just like the sun, you know, has the photons, the rays coming from the sun, and they come and they hit our eyes so that we can see and know what the sun looks like. So God's glory is something that emanates from him so that we can enjoy and know him and sense his goodness. So God's glory is his perceived goodness. It's as much as you can see of God's goodness, that's his glory. And this whole world, guys, was made for the glory of God. This whole world was made as a stage so that you could see and know and enjoy God's beauty and his wisdom and his goodness and his power and his love. That's what this is about. You know, I think in our culture, you know, a lot of times people even joke about the meaning of life, like it's something you can't know, you know. You ever wonder what this is all about? You know, of course you can't know. Or maybe you have to make it up for yourself. You know, you come up with your own answer for what this is all about. But there is an answer for what all this is about. This world was created to display God, display his goodness and his beauty and his wisdom so that we could take that in and enjoy him. That's why this place was made. That's why you were made. God does everything for his own glory. And the cool thing is, is that it's actually loving for God to do everything for his own glory because he's the source of all joy. If it's like a desert and he's the only fountain of joy in the entire desert, it's the right thing for him to do to put as many lights on himself as he can. Come here. This is where you find joy. This is where you find happiness. This is where you find peace. This is where you find meaning. It would actually be unloving for him to put the spotlight on anything else. So he does everything for his own glory. He wants us to all know him and to see him and to enjoy him. Psalm 16:11 says, "In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore." God has made this place to display his glory and his beauty so we can enjoy him. Now, Paul has some sort of glory of God in the future in mind, though. Take a look at verse 2 again. It says that it's something future because he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's some sort of glory of God thing coming that we're happy as we anticipate it. And so what's that? He's speaking of our future, guys. He's speaking of a future that we're going to have when we're going to enjoy the fullness of God's glory in the world to come. You guys, this is what you were made for. Just like eyeballs were made to absorb light and see light, and ears were meant to take in sound and hear sound, your soul was made with taste buds on it for the glory of God. Your soul was made to receive and enjoy the glory of God. Did you guys realize that? Your heart, your soul, even if you don't really know the Lord at this point, trust me on this, the Bible talks about this, that you were actually made for something far greater than whatever you're giving your life to now. Your soul has taste buds all over it for the glory of God to enjoy the glory of God. And this joy that we're going to have in the world to come, it's really amazing when you think about it because it'll be both never-ending and ever-increasing. So we're going to have never-ending happiness in the world to come. And not only will it be never-ending, it will always be increasing. So, well, how can that be? If you think about it, for you guys that are believers, those of you, when you learn something new about the Lord, you know what it does to your heart? You get happy, right? Like, oh, that was good. Did you see that about him? You tell a friend, like, did you know this about him? Did you know he, he has no needs outside of himself? It's crazy. You know, you tell, him, tell your friend something that you learned about God, and it makes you happy, right? Well, the cool thing is, is that God is infinite, right? His wonders are never-ending, and we're finite, so we can never take in everything that he is. So there's no worry that, you know, we're going to come to some point in heaven and just be like, oh, yeah, I saw him. What else is there to do here? No. 
because he's infinite. His wonders are, are never ending. And we have an inability to ever take in all that he is. It's like, it's like you go into the beach with a shot glass and you're trying to scoop out the Pacific Ocean. You can never do it, right? And that's what we're going to do for forever is we're going to see more and more of the glory and the beauty of God. Things we never dreamed about how wondrous he is. And it's going to give us joy. And it's going to give us never any joy. It's going to be ever increasing joy. Ephesians 2.7 says, In the coming ages he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in, in Jesus Christ. But there's another way, guys. So one of the ways we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God is we're looking forward to seeing God, to, to really seeing his beauty and his glory and taking in the fullness of who he is. But there's another way in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it might be what Paul has in mind because he talks about it in Romans 8. But when we see him, we're going to become like him. You guys realize that? That when we see him, we're going to become like him. When we, when we see and enjoy God's glory, we're going to be transformed by that glory, and we're going to become like him in holiness and love and happiness. Seeing him will make us like him. And that's one way that we rejoice in the glory of God. Romans 8.23 says this, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He talks about it a little bit later in that chapter. He calls it glorification. You guys familiar with that? That glorification, that we will be glorified in the sense that we're going to see God and we're going to become partakers in his glory. We're going to become partakers in his holiness, in his goodness, in his love. And this is going to be amazing, guys, because a lot of the unhappiness we have in this world is the fact that we are so unlike Christ. Amen? A lot of our unhappiness is not just our situation. It's in us. We're chronically unhappy because of the kind of people we are, right? But what will happen was when we see him, we will become like him and we'll be lightened of that load of sin within and able to fully enjoy our existence with him and with each other. The Apostle John says it this way. He talks about glorification. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. That God's going to remove every hindrance of your happiness, both in the world and in yourself. And we'll be like him. We'll be glorified. And um, I'm not really sure what more we could want from our future, you know, when you really think about it. Like, what more are you looking for? When you think about a future, a good future, what more are you looking for exactly? Because you might say, well, that's not exactly the future I wanted. Okay, let me review. So your body will be resurrected and made new, okay? You'll have no sin. You have no disease, no aches and pains, none of that stuff, right? Your body will be made new. Your soul, your heart, all that will be new so that you don't have any inclination to do anything but love others and, and delight in doing good and be holy and happy. And you're going to live in the world, but the world's going to be made new too. And all sin and death will be removed and all oppression and all the things that happen in this world that aren't good will be removed. And God himself will be visibly present to you. And you will enjoy fellowship with God. It says in Revelation 22 that you will see his face. Let's just do a quick poll. Or let me, let me just have a, a, an open question here. What else do you want to add? Anything else you want to add? That's the best possible future, guys. There's nothing more to add to that. That's the best possible future. And so he says in verse 2 that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's like anticipating a vacation, but far better. 
that that joy that's from the future actually trickles back into our present as we think about it. Just like you look forward to a vacation, we look forward to seeing him and being made new, and that gives us joy in the present. Now, there's something else we rejoice in, and this is a little bit harder to grasp. He says this. Take a look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Okay? First one, kind of easy, right? This one, a little tricky. We rejoice in our suffering. Suffering. It's strange. The word is thalipsis. It means to squeeze. Okay? Have you guys been squeezed by suffering? Any of you? No one's been squeezed by suffering. You guys are so blessed. Hashtag blessed everywhere, right? We've been squeezed by suffering, right? We've been squeezed by in all different ways. Some of you guys have been squeezed by suffering in immense ways. And some of you guys are just getting started being squeezed by suffering. I had a brief experience of suffering on Friday. I had severe vertigo. How many of you guys had severe vertigo? That's fun. That was the first time I've had it severely. So you wake up and you're spinning. You're on a ride you never signed up for and can't walk in a straight line, can't drive, definitely can't wrestle horses that day. They would have the advantage. It was crazy, right? And some people live in that all the time. I mean, I took some meds, things got better. You know, I have it a little bit right now, so if I fall over, it's not that I'm drunk or anything like that. You know, maybe it's the vertigo. Okay, but some people live in that constantly. You know, some people live in all kinds of constant suffering. And so how can Paul say here that we find joy in that? And you might say, well, maybe he means we find joy in spite of our suffering. But that's not what the text says, does it? See what it says? It says joy in our suffering. You say, well, how can that be? How can we have joy in our suffering? Look at verse 3 again. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. What's the next word? Knowing. Knowing. Okay, so there's something we can know. And if we know that thing, then we can rejoice in our suffering. There's something we need to know. What's the thing we need to know? Look at verse 3 again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Okay, so knowing that will give us joy in suffering. Now, look at that chain that we're going to talk about all those benefits in between, but where does it end? It starts with suffering, it ends where? In hope, right? So somehow God uses suffering to increase our hope. And that's a huge value, and you might not know how big of a value that is, so we're going to talk about it. But it's a huge value to have your hope increased. Now, biblical hope, guys, is not the way we use hope in our culture. The way we use our hope in our culture is the opposite of biblical hope. I'll give you an example. So you got a small group on Thursday or whatever, and it's like, hey, are you coming? And what the guy says, I hope so. Is he coming? No, he's not coming. That's a, way, a soft way of letting you down, okay? Right? So hope means the opposite, like probably not, okay? Which is so strange. Hope in the Bible means something totally different. It means an eager expectation. It means a certainty of the future. It's like you have a sense for the future that you have a future that's far better than your present. So I know my future is far better than my present. My hope tells me that. It convinces me of that. That I'll have the very best future, which is enjoying the fullness of the glory of God forever. And God uses our suffering somehow to give us more of that. To give us more hope to give us more assurance of our salvation. And that's what makes suffering worth it, right? It's worth it. Because if God is the most valuable thing, and he is, and my hope is my assurance, my certainty that I will have him forever, then hope is super important. Who would not want more of that? It's massively valued. How many of you guys want more hope? You want more assurance that you will be with the Lord on the final day enjoying forever. Like if we had like full level hope, we'd be unstoppable, right? 
That's something we need. That's something we want. Well, verse 4 says that it comes through suffering. Okay? It comes through suffering. We're going to see how it comes through suffering. Take a look again at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We're just going to go through those real quick. So suffering produces endurance. So one of the things that tells us is that the Lord uses suffering to make us better. Suffering makes us better. It makes us more. It gives us more endurance. Uh, Nassim Taleb, he has this term, and he's a business guru guy. It's not a, not a Christian as far as I know, but he has this term, uh, anti-fragile. Okay, so fragile things, if they suffer, if they're tried, they break. Okay, and resilient things stay the same. Like a big boulder on the mountain, you could hit it all day and nothing happens. It's it's resilient. But anti-fragile things get better when they're tried. They get better when they suffer. That's what anti-fragile is. Christian, you are anti-fragile, right? Anti-fragile means that you improve through trial. And we can think of examples, like muscles are a good example, right? Muscles, when they're tried, when they suffer, when they go through difficulty, they get stronger. Your immune system, same thing. When it gets tried, when it gets strained, when, it, when things are difficult for your immune system, it gets stronger, right? It's anti-fragile. Or the way that uh, Wesley took small doses of iocane poison over years so that he'd be immune to it. You guys know about that? Okay. That was anti-fragile, right? Suffering produces endurance, right? And knowing that gives us joy in suffering. So he's not just saying like, hey, you're suffering. You should love that. He's not saying that. He's saying, look at the endurance it's making. You're anti-fragile. He's making you better. He's making you stronger through this suffering. Second thing, endurance produces character. If endurance is kind of your persistent faithfulness after God, and we see that kind of in Abraham's life, persistent following after God, it's increasing with time. If endurance is your persistent actions, character is the reflexes of your heart. Character is a super amazing thing to develop because character is the reflexes of your heart. Dallas Willard put it this way. He says, our character is that internal overall structure of the self that is revealed by long-run patterns of behavior and from which our actions more or less automatically arise. So within our hearts, there are heart habits. There are reflexes. That a lot of the decisions you make, a lot of the things you do, you don't necessarily sit down and think about whether they're right or wrong. You just do them. That's character. It could be good or bad. But a godly character is one that reflexively does what's right. And this is why we use things like credit reports and job references. We believe that people tend to do the same thing over time, right? It's their character. Your character, guys, is your heart's reflexes. They're the decisions you make almost by default. Your heart, your character is being formed all the time for better or for worse. And we can think of a guy like Abraham. His heart's actually being formed for the better over time. Think of a guy like Solomon. He's getting worse over time, right? The character's being formed one way or another. And just the amazing benefit of this, guys, is that when your character is being formed for the better, making it more like Christ's character, your like moral reflexes do what's right. You know, you think about, you think about your life. Maybe there was a time when you would reflexively lie. A really common problem, especially young men, the reflexive lying. You know, you ask something, you immediately say something. You're like, why did I do that? I wanted to impress him. I, you know, I wanted, you know, control or I didn't want him to bug me. And so I just reflexively lied. Didn't think about it, just lied, right? That's a reflex. What happens is our character becomes more godly is that our heart makes decisions for us, split second decisions, and we do these actions without thinking that they're more and more in line with what is right. Isn't that amazing? Don't you want that? What's cool is when God forms our character more and more in the right way, 
we stop like wrestling with decisions that we used to wrestle with to try to do what was right. It was so hard in that area to like do what was right, but we did it, you know, some of the time and sometimes didn't. What happens when our character has changed is that we just go, oh, here's the right thing to do. Oh, I'll just do that, right? And God does that over time in certain areas of our life, not in every single part of us, but there's a certain areas that were very hard, areas of habitual sin that become easier and easier as our character has changed. How many of you guys would like more of that? I want more of that. I want less fighting. <laughs> to do what's right. I want my character more transformed. He says here that that's done, verse 4. It happens through suffering. Suffering gives you that. So that's one way we could rejoice in our sufferings. We're knowing like he's actually changing our moral reflexes in our heart. That's a huge value, guys. It's a huge value to actually want to do the things God commands and for it not to be a gigantic struggle anymore, right? That's character. That's something he's building. And then look at what comes next. He says, in character produces hope. You think character produces hope. Like, how would endurance, character, hope, like, how would we have hope from that? Well, I believe what's going on here is as we see God at work in our lives through our endurance, as we see God at work in our hearts through character, we actually have more and more hope because we can see that he's really at work in us. Isn't it so encouraging? It doesn't build your hope when you see that God really is in me and he's really leading me and he's really changing me. You know, that I'm really, like verse 2 says, standing in grace because I can see his grace at work in my life. Not that we're hoping in our own works there. We're hoping in the works we see him doing in us. You were like, okay, God's here because I didn't used to be like that and I can see some changes here and, you know, I can see him at work. This week, as you guys know, is the kind of anniversary of the pandemic in our valley. You know, this was Friday the 13th was the day that we're told like, hey, we're just going to take two weeks off of school. No big deal. We'll take away your spring break and we'll be back in gear. And, you know, all these kind of things developed and it kind of went on and on, as you know, no need to rehash that. But there's been a ton of losses, you know, and I think it's reasonable to recognize at this juncture, like this was not nothing. This is hard. (laughs) This is extremely hard. And a lot of us have gotten used to a whole bunch of areas of our life changing. And we've adapted and we've gotten endurance and God's worked on our character. And, but it's reasonable to say, like, this is not easy, you know? None of this is easy. I mean, there's been loss of life. I don't know how many of you have had people that you know that have died from coronavirus, but there's been massive loss of life. There's certainly been loss of freedom, Right. A lot of the things that we want to do, not being able to do them, being very difficult to do, things being closed, things like that. For some of you, but there has been loss of income. It's amazing how many of you have not had loss of income, but for a lot of you, there's been loss of income. Uh, Loss of school, you know? And I think we're all like, okay, like we'd like to do the school thing again, you know? Sometime soon, it'd be great. So the kids have suffered with that. You think about sports. A lot of losses there. I have no sports gene. doesn't affect me. But for some of you, especially your kids, it affects you a ton. You know, for some of you, it's affected you not being able to watch it and be a part of it. A lot of loss of, like, simple pleasures. Like you sit in a coffee shop with a friend and you talk, right? Or you go out to eat and you don't eat in your car. Eating in your car is hard. We've done our date nights in our car for, like, a year. We park out there and it's like a balancing act, you know? It's, like, really difficult. And uh, I know that's not major suffering, but a lot of simple pleasures have been lost, right? Lots of simple pleasures have been lost and lots of fellowship, right? I mean, now we got a lot of us are back here by doing it this way, but we've lost a lot of fellowship over this time. And some people have drifted from the Lord, for sure. I mean, I think we all know people that have 
it looks like, I mean, we don't know where that's going to end, but it looks like they're drifting from the Lord. It looks like they were here and now they're way over here and we're hoping that that's temporary, but it's scary, you know? So a lot of people drift from the Lord. And I just want to encourage you guys, if that's not you, if you have not drifted from the Lord during this year, that should give you great hope. God is at work in you. I think you need to recognize the evidence of God's grace in your lives that you have done this, you know? We're not going to give each other a round of applause or anything because it's the Lord's work, right? But to just think about if you would have known a year ago what was coming, you would have thought, oh, I can't do that. And it turns out you can. (laughs) You can, and the Lord's worked through you. I mean, if you have held fast to Christ and you've endured, like this text is talking about, in loving God's people, and if your character has been made more like Christ through this, I'm not saying it's been a straight curve because it probably hasn't, but if your character has been made more like Christ through this, then you should have tremendous hope. That's what this text says. It says suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. That's evidence of God's grace in you. And I'm super encouraged by it. I mean, to think here we are in a parking lot, and, you know, I won't talk a lot longer because it's going to get a lot colder, but we're persisting, you know? It's the perseverance of the saints. It's the pea and tulip. We're persevering. God is keeping us going, and it's something that should give us great hope. None of us would have chosen this last year, but God chose it for us, right? And he's good, and he's wise, and he's done it to give you endurance and character and hope. And he's done it for his glory, and he's done it for our eternal happiness, actually, as well. So you'd think that somehow, like in this passage, you'd think that somehow suffering with poor cold water on our joy, that we like think about this future we have with the Lord, and we're like, oh, that's so great. And then we suffer, and it'd be like cold water on it. But what it turns out in this text is just the opposite that as suffering comes, we become more and more certain of the thing that we have coming to us, and God actually turns it for our joy. He makes our present suffering increase our hope in the world to come. Suffering doesn't threaten our hope and joy. It increases it, and he does that because God's made your hope and your joy anti-fragile. It's anti-fragile. You thought it was fragile, but it's not. It's anti-fragile. So God gives us one more thing to hope in in this text, and I I think why he has verse 5 here is because we can't always see that work of God in our hearts, right? Sometimes it's hidden from us. Sometimes people around us go like, man, I can just see the Lord working in your life. You're like, well, if you saw the inside, you wouldn't think so, right? But God is at work, but we don't see it. So he encourages us one other way. Check it out. It's in verse five. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who God has given to us. So God... He makes us more certain of our future with him by giving us the Holy Spirit within us. That one other way that he encourages our hope and tells us that we're his is he's put the Holy Spirit in us. And what's really cool is, you know, in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit's called the first fruits. In other passages, Paul calls him a down payment, right? So what is he? He's, he's an assurance that we will have God as our treasure fully. That we're going to fully enjoy him. Because how does the down payment work? It's part of the whole, right? You assure somebody you're going to give them all of it by giving them a little bit of it. And so what happens in the giving of the Holy Spirit is that our communion with God by the Holy Spirit is assurance that we're going to get the full experience of God's presence in the world to come. Isn't that cool? He encourages us in that. He assures us by, by giving us his presence within us. And this text says that he makes himself known in there. Do you see how the Holy Spirit makes himself known in there? Take a look at verse 5 again. Verse 5, he talks about how he makes himself known. He says, but God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given to us. So, so God 
has given us the Holy Spirit, who is also God, to live within us, and he pours God's love into our hearts. And you think, okay, well, what is this love of God? This could either be our love for God, or this could be God's love for us. And actually, the Holy Spirit gives us an experience of both. But in this text, I think he's talking about God's love for us. And the reason is the context. If you read a little further in chapter 5, Marcel is going to do that part next week, but it talks about God's love for us. So what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's, he's increasing our hope by directly pouring God's love into our hearts, a sense for God's immense love for us. Notice it's pouring. He doesn't like drizzle it, you know, he doesn't daub it. He doesn't put little drops of it in there, right? He pours a sense of God's love for us into our hearts. The Holy Spirit, when he does that, he's allowing us to enjoy the love that the Father and the Son have had for each other from all eternity. You want to hear about that? Okay, so God is one God, three persons, and from ever, because there was never a beginning, the Father and the Son have loved one another. The Father's loved the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit's in that whole mix there, right, of love and enjoyment. And what's happening is when you trusted in Christ, you became united with Christ, and the Holy Spirit, like, there's this love back and forth between the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit kind of puts you right in the middle so that you're enjoying the love they've always had, that you're brought into communion with God, and you're actually experiencing the Father's affections for his Son in you, directed at you. Isn't that amazing? So amazing. And the Holy Spirit gives us hope by doing that, by pouring that love into us. And this is just the beginning, right? This is just the down payment. The Holy Spirit is just giving us tastes of what we'll have in the world to come. And that experience of like, you might say, well, I don't know that I really feel the love of the Father poured into my heart. So I do feel like it's a bit of a drizzle. It, it varies, right? I think we could all admit, like for various reasons, our experience of God's love, our, our feeling that he loves us as his own child, it varies in differing degrees. And I think that's totally normal. Um, our experience varies like, like a father and a small child, and they'll walk, and sometimes they'll just walk next to each other and talk, and sometimes they'll hold hands. And then sometimes that father will scoop that kid up and squeeze him and just show him his immense love for him. And the Holy Spirit does that for us. All of a sudden we feel like, and I don't know when that's going to come, but like sometimes we'll just feel like, man, God loves me. And that's an experience the Holy Spirit gives us to, to encourage us and, and to give us more hope. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and the cool thing about the Lord's Supper is it's a, it's a time for God to remind us of his love for us, right? As we look at the, the bread and the cup, we actually, the Holy Spirit gives us a taste for his love for us. And so if this is your hope, the thing I just talked about, that you're right in Jesus Christ and you're at peace with him and, and God himself is your father, if that's your hope, then we'd invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. But if that's not your hope tonight, and I don't know how many maybe online or with us tonight, maybe you're, you've not come to Christ. You've kind of kept Christ at arm's length. You're estranged to him. You're not at peace with him. I would just ask you tonight to consider why. You know, why would you not want to be reconciled with God? I mean, imagine if there was somebody who was the most amazing, wonderful person you ever met, and you knew that you were estranged with that person, and they were on the other side of town or whatever. And just imagine that person had never done you wrong, but you had wronged them, and you just didn't want to make this thing right. And imagine that person just really, really, really wants to be reconciled with you, written you a bunch of letters about it, wants you to come back. 
And just imagine that that person has made every, been willing to bear every expense to make it happen, but you choose to stay estranged and you refuse that reconciliation. That's the case if you haven't received Jesus Christ. Is it God's just like that? God's never wronged you. He's willing to bear all the expense of the wrongs you've done. And he's willing to welcome you back. And I would just say tonight as we're taking the Lord's Supper, you could take it if you'd come to him. Come to him. Have peace with him. Stand in grace. Who doesn't want to stand in grace with God? You know, like that you could be always treated in grace through Jesus Christ. Have hope in your suffering. You know, I always wonder how people deal with it. I can't remember back when I was an unbeliever, like how I thought about suffering, but I don't know how you would deal with suffering without having any kind of meaning to it or any kind of hope in it. You could have that if you trust in Jesus Christ. And you could receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. God wants to dwell within you. So the Lord's Supper is a time to be assured of God's love for us, um, to anticipate the glory to come, and to have our hope fed. Let me read you a passage from Matthew 26 as we take the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. A couple things we can see from here is that the Father wants to assure us through Jesus that he loves us, right? When we look at this bread and we, we drink the cup, we're remembering what he said. This is my body. This is my blood. That God himself would have his own body pierced for you and he would have his own blood shed for you. Another thing we can see in this text is that we anticipate the glory of God. He said he's, Jesus said he's not going to drink wine or eat that meal again until he eats it with us in the world to come. Isn't that cool? He's fasting from wine for you, right? Because he wants to do this in the kingdom with you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd feed our hope as we take this. We pray that you'd make us strong in hope, make us joyful in our sufferings, make us happy in holiness, make us long-suffering in love for one another. And we pray that you'd do that as we take this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together. Hear now the voice of your Savior saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Let's take the cup. Hear now the voice of your Savior say, This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink and remember me. Let's take it together. Father, we pray that you'd give us hope. We pray, Lord, for all those that are here that are struggling with assurance, that are struggling with certainty in your promises, those are struggling with certainty about your goodness, about your love for them. We pray, Lord, that even as we worship you with these songs, Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and pour out your love in our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those who maybe during the message were yet untouched by your love. I pray that you do this, Lord. You can do this tonight. You could, by your Holy Spirit, for every person here, fill us with a sense of your love. We pray that you do this for your glory and for our joy. And we pray, Lord, that we would leave here 
just truly knowing we met with the living God and, and ready to endure whatever suffering is going to come to us and to do it with joy, knowing that you're at work in our lives and that our future is incredibly good. Incredibly good. Lord, we're all able to somehow find joy currently when we know our future is good. Lord, give us an overwhelming sense of what you have for us. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.